According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. As we uh, return to our study from last week, Matthew chapter 10, we're dealing with the commissioning of the twelve and their training ministry as they're sent forth. They are officially apostles at this point because they've been sent forth. The term apostello means to send forth, to send with a commission. They are not church-age apostles, of course, don't get me wrong. The uh, church age doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends, and then these men will become church age apostles, all of them, except for Judas Iscariot, of course, dies between here and there. But these others will move on to become church age apostles. For the moment, though, they are dispensation of Israel apostles. Important that we recognize that. This is what makes them apostles of the Lamb, as uh, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world during this ministry the uh, dispensation of Israel, the age of the incarnation. And the apostles of the Lamb are distinct from all other apostles, church-age apostles and so forth. And we've taught that a number of times, but I think it's worth reinforcing as we examine it. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. And so the recognition is that the verb pempo means to send, but apostello means to send with a commission, to send with the appointed authority, the representative authority. And so Christ is himself an apostle. He's the apostle and a high priest of our confession. He is, uh, has been commissioned and sent by the Father. Uh, so too are these men now commissioned and sent forth. And that's what we're studying Today, Before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for this day and the truth of your Word and the privilege and blessing that it is to have a, a prayer time this morning, Father, to have the opportunity to, uh, wrestle, uh, with the, uh, to wrestle together with you, to strive with you and to prevail. Father, and we thank you that you've designed prayer in such a fashion and in such a function that we not only can pray individually, but we can pray corporately with one another and the like-mindedness of, of what you supply. Thank you that we can be intent on one purpose, united in spirit, and we thank you for that, that grace provision. Father, we uh, commit to you now our time of study, asking for distractions to be set aside, asking, Father, that you would hedge us about with your uh, protection, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the, the one class during the week where we typically, as a rule, don't have any deacons present, so uh, appreciate having uh, the men here who can make it here, and if we uh, need to deal with issues, we'll appoint you temporary acting deacon for the hour, and uh, you'll have full authority to throw people out if we need to have that happen, <laughs> as far as that goes. I'm expecting all kinds of things. No, no. But with the angelic conflict being intensified, I expect everything. And that's, uh, that's the way it works. By the way, keep these things in prayer as the training ministry uh, goes full speed and as men relocate from around the country. Um, we've got two now, one from Washington State, uh, a single man, 18-year-old, and uh, who's considering his college options, but he's also considering seminary training in lieu of college, and he's, he's wrestling over a lot of issues. And he's going to come and spend a summer with us. And then a uh, uh, man I just made contact with this morning has got a, 
family. They're going to relocate out of uh, Indiana and relocate down here and begin seminary training. So a lot of things that we want to uh, we want to definitely keep in prayer. We can expect as the uh, ministry opportunities increase that the conflict will increase as well. But hey, at least this morning we don't have the government barricading our parking lot and we are evidently permitted to uh, to have church today. Okay, the 12 sent out, Matthew chapter 10. Again, we find as the introduction to this Turn off these lights before I forget. The introduction to this actually comes back in chapter 9, in verses 35 through 38. It is another Galilean tour. Uh, We don't have all the details of this tour, but it's summarized here is that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And this helps us to set the focus and the orientation and the priorities uh, that his focus was on teaching. As he arrived, the, the recognition was that a teacher was in town. A rabbi was in town, to use the term of the day. And uh, it was oriented to the imminent kingdom, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And we discussed that to some extent. We can discuss that some more if questions remain. But the good news concerning the kingdom is that it was at hand, that the king is present, and that should the nation of Israel be humbled and repentant and accept their king and so forth, that it was literally at hand. And we, we know now at the hindsight that they did not, that they did not repent, they did not humble themselves, that they were very arrogant, that they uh, crucified their, their king. And uh, we realize that the kingdom is still Uh, at hand per se but it is now presently in the mystery form and he started to teach them the uh, mystery parables which we took a lot of time to detail out of Matthew 13 so that the ministry was focused on teaching the ministry was oriented to the imminent kingdom and I would put forth today in the dispensation of the church that local church ministries that are focused on teaching are the ones that are going to thrive and local church ministries that are oriented to the imminent rapture of the church are going to thrive. We have our own imminency to be oriented to. It's not the kingdom of Israel, the throne of David, necessarily. That was their imminent orientation and expectation. Our imminent orientation and expectation is the rapture of the church, the the sounding of the trumpet, the calling forth of the bride as we get snatched up into the clouds. So we can have a teaching focus and we can have an imminency orientation in the church age, and that should be... um, expected in any local church if uh, if what we're doing is patterning or or following the example of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the ministry features signs and wonders, but that's not the focus. We don't call it a signs and wonders ministry. It was a teaching ministry focused on the immediate kingdom, but it featured signs and wonders which complemented the focus and orientation. See, our ministry may feature other things. We feature uh, potlucks. We feature socials. We feature baptisms. We feature uh, communion. We feature uh, uh, a teen class. We feature a Wednesday morning ladies class. We feature a training ministry. We feature MP3 recordings. Goodness, we feature all kinds of things. But everything we feature does what? It complements. It, it goes hand in hand. It goes back to uh, to really spotlight our focus and our orientation. If it detracts from the teaching, we better get rid of it. But if it complements and supplements the teaching, we can make use of it. See, and that's everything from from PowerPoint to the projector to Elmo sitting up here to everything, to the microphones. If it if it complements the teaching, we make use of it. If it's a distraction, we want no part of it. 
Uh, and as you might expect, today in the charismatic circles, Pentecostal circles and so forth, where they have these signs and wonders and prophecy and healing type ministries, uh, is that designed to complement something else or is that itself the focus? Is that what they're celebrating? Is that what they're embracing? Is that what they're involved in? And then, uh, you know, beyond the fact that you have to conclude that they're not legitimate uh, miracles taking place in the first place. So we have a focus, we have an orientation, and we have the features. Now the disciples here, as they're commissioned and as they're sent forth, are going to be provided the same features. They're going to be given authority to cast out demons, to heal, to do miracles, and so forth. But the features of what they're going to be permitted to do should not distract us from what their focus and what their orientation is going to be as they minister. That they themselves are going forward in teaching ministries. They themselves are going forward in with an orientation to the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Finally, his ministry was burdened by the shepherdless insufficiency of his generation and society. Seeing the people, we read about in Matthew 9:36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And I'd say that's the same burden that we have around here when we realize that there are so many churches around this country that are looking for pastors and there is such a shortage of pastors that we have this burden to take men, to train men, to equip these men, to give them the tools and then to plant them, to get them to work and, uh, and uh, provide shepherds for these shepherdless flocks that, uh, that are out there. He had large crowds that followed him, but 12 of them were special gifts from God the Father. And these were the 12 who went from disciples to apostles. And uh, we have them named there from Peter to Judas. And uh, we won't review that this morning. We uh, also have done a thorough study on this back in Galilean ministry, episode number 16, where the 12 were selected after a night of prayer. So uh, we've already done the background on these 12 guys. And uh, if you want to review that, the MP3s are on the website. He sends the twelve into Judah and Galilee with specific power and instructions. And this is where really we have the meat of the chapter, starting in verse 5 and going all the way down through verse 42. This is the, the lengthiest section here. Starting in verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. You don't just take a man who says he wants to minister and, he's, and you say, okay, great, let's go minister uh, and, and just launch him forth. They need training. They need preparation. They need instruction. See, how long have these guys been under instruction before he actually sent them out? And when he did send them out, he didn't send them out to fly solo either. They, they went out to, in, in a two-by-two two type of uh, partnership. So he sent them out after instructing them. And uh, then we have the, uh, the uh, instructions that are then detailed, particularly that their focus is to start with the Jews. Not the Gentiles. Now, later on, they'll have freedom to go to the Gentiles. And, of course, in, after the uh, church age begins, uh, they ought to go to the Gentiles. They're supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. But for this first training ministry, it is Jewish only. It is Jewish only. They're starting small, and they're starting with where they are. They're starting with where their uh, comfort level would be, where they're uh, with a crowd that they're already naturally accustomed to, and so forth. In other words, we might have training ministries, and we might have start things here locally in this area where you teach Bible classes, or you do uh, child evangelism, or you do other things locally with our own 
culture and in our own language and so forth before anyone would ever then be equipped to go off to Mozambique somewhere and become a missionary in the jungles in a culture that he's completely unfamiliar with and a language that he doesn't speak and, and everything else. And also you will note that this is really an internship because the, they're not being launched permanently, never to come back again. They're being launched in a short-term uh, module, we would call it today, to return back and to report in and to resume additional teaching and training. That they will report back and once again submit to Christ and submit to his teaching and his ministry and uh, and the things there. So we would call this like a uh, an internship or uh, a guest speaking uh, type capacity, like when we send men out to Sweeney or Horseshoe Bay or other places that need coverage on a particular Sunday. That's exactly the kind of situation that we see here in Matthew chapter 10. Now, under this, we gave you the subpoints A through E, and we left off at point five. Am I correct? So you got A through E already. I'm going to pass by a lot of these, and we'll just get right to point five. That gospel of the kingdom, though, I hope we're Solid on that. The grace financial policy. One of the best things you can do is ground a man in a grace financial policy while he's still in training so that when he launches into the ministry, he will have that grace financial policy expectation and mindset in, uh, in so many ways. And I also believe that uh, when he called them to be fishers of men, when he called them to leave their secular work, that the, uh, the funds that came in that supported him also supported them, that it was a full uh, training operation that supported not just his expenses, traveling needs, food, and all the rest, but also provided the needs for Peter, Andrew, James, John, all 12 of these guys, because the workman is worthy of his hire. And that's the principle that's here. And uh, that's the principle that and someday we would like to see implemented in uh, the training ministry and the men that we're training for, uh, for the ministry. It's amazing how... Uh, the seminary model expects these guys to go through uh, undergraduate, to go through graduate school, to go through seminary, to, to pay the whole way, uh, to, to spend a fortune on books, and then they get ordained, and then they start a church, and only then, when they're actually planted in a church, then they start uh, being supported. You know, have we really trained them on grace up to that point of time when, uh, when they were paying their ticket and, and working so hard to get there? This model supports the men while they're training and uh, builds that pattern before they're, before they're fully launched. Then, of course, there's the need to be shrewd as a serpent and harmless as doves, and that's the context there. Really, we all make application. That's, every believer should, should make that application, but just think about how vital it is for those that are entering into ministry, for those that have to, uh, because they themselves are to be on the alert for the flock. They themselves are guardians uh, and, and watchmen and protectors. And so, um, you know, really verse 16 applies to everybody. We're all sheep in the midst of wolves when it comes to that. But these men in particular have to have that shrewdness, that discernment in, uh, in the leadership function that they're proceeding to uh, follow. All right. The Lord's, this is point five then in the outline, the Lord's instructions for his apostles not only addresses their immediate circumstances, but prophetically looks ahead to the tribulation. And now this, we're, we're fine with this. I'm going to show you a couple of examples of this. For instance, in the Old Testament, it's something that we might expect to come from a, uh, from a prophet. So before we get to verse 23 or 21, let's, uh, let's notice some things. Let's go, let's 
go to Luke 4. And, I, and I, I, you probably get tired of these examples. There are literally dozens of these examples. But I try to find the ones that are the easiest to spot. And for me, this is the easiest one to spot. In Luke 4, and uh, in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Notice one book, not three books. Some of the liberals today try to tell you that there were three different Isaiahs. They all got compiled at some point in time. It's a bunch of garbage. It's the book of Isaiah with one book, one author. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is coming from Isaiah chapter 61, which according to the liberal know-it-alls, uh, would, they would tell you, well, that's third Isaiah. That's Trito Isaiah or, or Deutero Isaiah. They got all this garbage about who they think wrote the book of Isaiah. Uh, Jesus said that uh, Isaiah wrote it, and he starts quoting from it here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Period. That's where the sentence ends in Luke 4. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So now, hold your finger there. And I mean it. Hold your finger there, because you're going to flip back to here in just a moment. And uh, go to Isaiah 61. Go to Isaiah 61. Let's take a look at it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Wait a minute. There's not a period there. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up their former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks and Foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers, but you will be called the priests of the Lord, for you will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. And I can go on, but I'll stop for the moment. Um, it, it's, it's obvious in Isaiah 61 that uh, something very significant happens in the midst of verse 2 and then on through the rest of verse 2 and on through the rest of this context, we're looking at something that's extremely millennial. We're looking at the second advent uh, prophecies here. We're looking at uh, glory. We're looking at victory. We're looking at uh, all of the promises of the, of the imminent kingdom and so forth. But when Christ is citing this passage, He's reading the first verse and the first third of verse 2, and the application of that being first advent, he can say, today this uh, scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and it's very significant where he stopped in Isaiah 61 two, 
where as we read it, I mean, you just look at it, the day uh, proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord, there's no period there, but he put a period there. Jesus put a period there when he stopped his sentence, rolled up the scroll, put it back in the, on the shelf, sat down and started to explain it. And the reason why is because at that point in this text, we have a shift. And, and this is my term for it. I call it a prophetic shift. The idea that, that, uh, that we have today of first advent prophecies and second advent prophecies and that they're all very distinct and that we can put them in very different uh, boxes and all that, that's wrong. We do that now because we're in between the two advents. But the, the prophecies as originally given in the Old Testament were not divided out between two different boxes, as it were. And some prophecies addressed both in the same verse, in the same breath, in the same uh, promise. And when it, if you think about it in reality, it's conceivable that in an alternate timeline, it would have all been one advent, Right? First and second advent would have all been one continuous deal because the Christ would have been born. The Christ would have been presented. They would have accepted their king and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's move right in and start fulfilling second advent prophecies. See, this is why God is so amazing that he can give these prophecies and, uh, and they, they are perfectly fulfilled even when the second advent portion of them gets delayed for some 2,000 years. It doesn't change the nature of the original prophecies and doesn't change the nature of their application. So... You got the concept down of a prophetic shift, and you just saw it there as one example of it in, in Isaiah 61. There are other examples that are shifts not necessarily in time, but are shifts in person. For example, in a passage where we start off talking about a human king, and then it shifts to talking about Satan, where it, where it shifts it to talk about the fallen angels behind the earthly throne, for example. Are you familiar with that prophetic shift? That's another nature of not just a time shift, but a person shift. Um, so we have these as concepts. Now, when we come back to Matthew chapter 10, we can be sensitive to the potential for prophetic shifts because they're featured in practically every Old Testament prophet. You'll find prophetic shifts in Isaiah, prophetic shifts in Daniel, prophetic shifts in Ezekiel, prophetic shifts in Hosea, prophetic shifts in, in, in Zechariah. I mean, every, every prophet I can think of where I've actually taught the book verse by verse, I've encountered prophetic shifts at some point. Either shifts in time, shifts in person, or shifts in context. All right? Well, now, so we can be attuned to that and recognize, you know what? This is a very real possibility in the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus Christ is an Old Testament prophet. And the things that he speaks of in prophetic passages, such as Sermon on the Mount, Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, Kingdom of Heaven Parables, uh, commissions like this, where he's speaking prophetically that in keeping with the nature of Old Testament prophets, um, that term bother you, in keeping with the dispensation of Israel prophets, we might expect such a thing. And so as we read through here in Matthew 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep, sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, right away we know that there is something more long-range in view because he told them that they don't have anything to do with the Gentiles. He told them that they're only going to the Jews. But now when he's starting to describe what their ministry is really going to be like, 
he's speaking beyond just this first itinerant uh, uh, training ministry. He's actually speaking in a more of a long-term uh, context. And in terms of uh, handing you over to courts, scourging you in the synagogues, does that happen in this training ministry? No. What it, it ends up happening in the book of Acts. It ends up happening in the church age. It ends up happening to these very men, but in the book of Acts in the church age, see. And uh, brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Paul could, could take great comfort from that verse, knowing that uh, it was to be expected before he ever went to Rome in chains and before he ever stood before Caesar. And then it goes on, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, we have another shift here in verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Now, the context for this all of a sudden is changing. Because it's not just it's not just a, a uh, the venue is what I'm trying to say. It's not just disciples that are out there Bible teaching. It's not just apostles that are out there proclaiming the kingdom. Now all of a sudden we're finding family disruptions. We're finding uh, affliction that's taking place within families, brother and brother, father and children, children and parents. And then notice verse 22: You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And so we've got a context here where we have to really understand what is this about or we can take this, people twist this into some terrible, terrible applications. You probably encountered it. They take this as a gospel passage and they say, see, you can lose your salvation. If you don't endure to the end, you're not saved. And they point to that and say, see, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And they incorporate that in their evangelism, in their gospel message that you have to believe in Jesus Christ and endure to the end to get saved and stay saved. All right? You encounter people that have thrown that verse at you? So let's recognize what is the context for uh, verse 1, where he sends them out, and uh, in verse 5, where he sends them out. He sent them out after instructing them. So what is the context for the sending out of verse 5? What is the context for the sending out of sheep in the midst of wolves in verse 16? What is the context for brother betraying brother and the persecution of verse 21? I think if we get the settings there properly uh, aligned, then it answers a lot of these other questions. So that, then we can come to understand when is the universal hatred of faithful witnesses uh, for the, because of the name of Jesus Christ, when is that going to take place? See? And then the idea of enduring to the end makes a whole lot more sense. And then the idea of whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Right there is our biggest clue that this, this context from 21 to 23 is tribulation. It's waiting for the imminent return of the Christ who this cannot be the same message for the same part-time training ministry that they're doing here in verse in verse five. Is that making sense? In verse five, they're being sent out for a training ministry. And we're just calling it the itinerant training ministry two by two. In verse 16, we have more of a description of the church age because it's more of a long range description. 
And then in verse 21 through 23, we have a even further long range description because that one becomes tribulational in its, in its focus. And that's what I'm going to give you here in the sub points. We're prophetically looking ahead to the tribulation. Rather than a close-knit family, clan, and tribe atmosphere, the setting for this portion of text is fixed in a time of complete family disassociation. Rather than a close-knit family, clan, and tribe atmosphere, or I guess tribal atmosphere, the setting for this portion of text is fixed in a time of complete family disassociation. The, the ugliness of verse 21 does not describe the first century when Jesus walked the earth. It describes our day pretty well. <laughs> it describes 21st century uh, cosmos system where there is no uh, family loyalty whatsoever, where there's uh, betrayal that's common. Where, uh, you know, uh, family members are suing one another for all kinds of things. Custody battles this and all kinds of other property there and all kinds of other evil that takes place. Intense hatred. The desire to, uh, to see somebody harmed, even put to death. It's uh, obviously a different realm than the uh, the world that uh, Peter and James and those guys were going forward to in uh, in verse five, when they were avoiding Samaritans, avoiding Gentiles, and simply uh, proclaiming the kingdom to a Jewish audience in uh, 32 A.D. or 31 A.D. So this becomes our clue that what we're examining here is a prophetic shift. We're looking at a shift in time. We also notice universal hatred for the name of Jesus Christ leading to a time of persecution. Universal hatred for the name of Jesus Christ. Universal hatred for the name of Jesus Christ, leading to a time of unprecedented persecution. Again, this is not really a description of first century. Even in the early days of the church where there was persecution, it was not specifically a hatred for the name of Christ that drove it in many cases. The Romans didn't know what to make about the way. They didn't know what to really make about the early church. They just thought it was another sect of the Nazarenes, a sect of the Jews. They felt it was a Jewish squabble. It was a squabble between Jews. Uh, of course, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish rulers rejected that totally and said, no, no, they're not Jews. They're, they're traitors. They're heretics. They need to be killed and so forth. So they hated, they hated the Christians. But universal worldwide hatred? No, we're describing tribulation at this point because it says you will be hated by all. You will be hated by all. And it is, it's, a, it's a global realm, not just simply the lost sheep of the house of Israel involved here. All right. Matter of fact, uh, he's still kind of on the, on the upswing in terms of his popularity. The Jews aren't hating him at this point. They're flocking after him because... He's healing them. He's casting out demons. He's teaching like they never heard before. And the crowds are gathering. They're going to keep gathering. The pinnacle will be the feeding of the 5,000. Before he makes them all mad because he won't repeat the trick. (laughs) All right. We've got that coming up. So, uh, clearly, I think between some points A and B, we've got the grounds for identifying a prophetic shift in this passage, very similar to what we find in the prophetic passages. See, we don't just simply want to 
uh, create out of thin air, just make up our own prophetic shift and then force it into the text and say, well, that's got to be a prophetic shift because it doesn't agree with our theology, right? No. If there are indicators in the text, such as the family dysfunction, disassociation of verse 21, such as the worldwide hatred and persecution of verse 23, if there are indicators within the text that themselves demand a change of context, a change of setting, a change of time, a change of person, if the text indicators are there, then we can safely make that conclusion and safely say, well, wait a minute. This context is completely different. Let's do something different with this text because the text itself is doing something different with itself. Does that make sense? So since the text is doing something different than itself, we want to be faithful to the text. And we want to realize that the, uh, I, I, the sending out of verse 5 is different than the sending out of verse 16, which is different from the uh, brother will betray brother to death in verse 21. And that we have the, the shifts in this passage that are moving from the dispensation of Israel to the dispensation of the church to the dispensation of tribulation as uh, uh, dispensation of Israel age of tribulation as uh, we see it there now as this persecution takes place notice again brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death consider what happens today in a Jewish family when a son accepts Christ Consider what happens today and how they're disowned and how they are. They conduct a funeral service to bury their, their child. And they never have anything to do with them again. Because to them, that child is dead. Right? Well, consider after the church age is gone, after the restraint is lifted, after there's uh, unrestrained evil, uh, consider what would happen in that kind of an age where they can do more than just simply ostracize. They could do more than just simply uh, hold a mock funeral and ignore them, where even the persecution could be active, where even put to death could take place. See, uh, they're going to be rebuilding their temple. They're going to be restarting animal sacrifices. They're going to be doing a tremendous amount of going back to real Old Testament type stuff. Is it that much of a stretch to have them literally stoning their heretics and apostates? For accepting Christ? See? So, again, I think the, the whole a, uh, atmosphere of these verses is, is full of a tribulational context and um, causing them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, if this is a tribulational realm, then enduring to the end starts to make a whole lot more sense. Because how long is the tribulation? It's of a finite period of time. It's Daniel's 70th week. It's a seven-year span of time of 360-day years. It's 1,260 days is the last uh, three and a half years of that. And they can mark their calendar based upon the start of that time frame with the, the treaty with Antichrist. So they can mark that calendar. They know that they can, if they endure to the end, Armageddon is coming. Christ is returning. All of a sudden, enduring to the end has a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It's not about you trying to deserve your salvation to the point of your physical death. It's about trying to physically live on the planet without getting murdered under the persecution and all the, the chaos going on, plus all the divine wrath being poured out in trumpets and seals and bowls and the things that are, that are flooding the planet. So endurance to the end results in deliverance. And uh, he does. He lands on the Mount of Olives and the mountain is split north and south and a valley is formed and there's a way of escape 
when uh, you know the adversary thought he had them all blocked in there, there was nowhere to run. All of a sudden, boom, there's a valley. <laughs> you know, hello, way of escape, exit route through the valley. All right. So, the uh, the tribulational context truly helps uh, us to frame the expression endure to the end in verse 22. It also helps us to frame it in verse 23. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Again, that's got to be a tribulational passage because it's viewing the imminent return of the Son of Man. So we, uh, I think, we do well by recognizing the prophetic shifts in this passage and treating it like a uh, Old Testament prophet. And I think we do just fine with it in that, in that realm. All right. But we do have some principles for our application as well, starting with point six. The principle of cosmos hatred. The principle of cosmos hatred is clearly established. He makes the disciples very aware of it. And you and I better be very aware of it today. Servants of the Lord will be hated because the Lord himself is hated. That's verses 24 and 25 of our text. A disciple is not above his master, a teacher, nor a slave above his master. Now, we're not apostles, but we are disciples. We are church-age disciples. And uh, we're not above the teacher. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Think of the hatred that the cosmos world system has for Jesus Christ. And yet they can't attack him personally. He's at the right hand of the Father in glory. So they can't attack him. What are they going to attack? His bride, his church, his body. They can't attack him, but they attack him through his presence here on earth. His presence here on earth is in his bride, in the body of Christ. And so we should not consider that a strange thing. All the uh, places in the New Testament where we're told, why, you know, why do you consider it a strange thing that this is happening? This is not strange. It's normal. If it wasn't happening, I'd think that's strange. <laughs> and I'd want to know why. Why does the world not seem to have any problems with you? Are you really that friendly with the world? The world's getting along pretty well with you, huh? Why is that? No, the hatred is there. And so we have the principle of cosmos hatred. And uh, the apostles had to learn it, and they did learn it. So far as we know, uh, every single one of them, except for John, every single one of them suffered a martyr's death. The only one, if the traditions are true, the only one who died of old age was John. And that's not for lack of trying. There were, there were occasions, incidents, where, uh, where he was supposedly martyred or attempted martyred, that he was uh, thrown in boiling oil, for example. They were going to kill him by throwing him in a vat of boiling oil, and he was unharmed. He just sat there like it was a nice you know, hot tub or something. <laughs> the world's first jacuzzi as uh, they threw him in this vat of boiling oil, and he just sat there, and he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, well, we better get him out of there. <laughs> so they pulled him out of the vat of oil, and they sent him to the island of Patmos. I thought that could get him out of the picture, and all he did there was write the book of Revelation and sent it to the seven churches and, and all the rest. No, John's the only one, so far as we know, that suffered. They died of old age. They died a, a ripe old age full of days in his you know, own home and so forth. These other men all died a martyr's death. And uh, you know, the recognition of the cosmos hatred is, uh, is very important. We mentioned at the beginning of this hour, I expect the conflict to increase. Why? Because we were getting underway in this training ministry. And there's men preparing to be pastor teachers. The adversary doesn't want that to happen. He likes the fact that these lampstands are without shepherds. 
Does he want to see a, a, an operation take place here where a bunch of pastors will get trained, equipped, and planted, and, and uh, placed in these churches? Of course he doesn't. So you better believe we're going to have some conflict. Let's, uh, let's do the rest of this chapter. So, again, verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Now, that, that's true. We want to learn that. We want to glean those principles so far as it goes. So far as the disciple remains a disciple. See? But let's not... Let's not take that too far because what happens when the disciple goes forward in his own generation and he's no longer a disciple? See, for example, the men that we train, I hope that they get planted in their local churches and I hope that they become pastors and I hope that as pastors in their day, if, if B3 becomes a pastor in his generation, I hope that in his day he goes miles beyond anything I ever touch. And, I, and he should because he's going to be able to build upon what men before him have done. I, I'm able to build upon... Ralph Braun and Colonel Thiem, and if, if we, all we try to do is just rise up to the level of what they did, then what are we really doing? No, we should be building upon, building upon, building upon. Later generations should, of course, be going further than, uh, than their predecessors. And that's, uh, that's a different issue than what we look there with a, a disciple above his teacher. At a point where you do surpass your teacher, you know, you're not a disciple anymore at that point. You yourself have become a teacher and you may very well surpass previous teachers. All right. Therefore, do not fear them. Verse 26. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Put things in perspective. When your persecution is physical... Recognize that realm for what it is. If your affliction is spiritual, recognize that realm for what it is. And which one is the more important, obviously? We need to be occupied with the Father. Fear of the Father. Are we afraid of earthly persecution? Hopefully not. Hopefully we're more afraid of the Father. See, and those who uh, were given the choice to recant their faith or face death. Uh, we read you the martyrdom of Polycarp a few weeks ago. And uh, all he had to do to, to avoid being burned at the stake was simply renounce Christ. And he told him, he said, no, for 86 years I faithfully served him. He's blessed me. I'm not going to recount him. I'm not going to deny him now. He's, he's, never, he's never let me down before. He's not going to let me down today. Why would I start denying him now? And so he stayed faithful unto death. They burned him at the stake. See, um, this, uh, the key to this, though, is the occupation with the Father, the occupation with the Son. And when you fear God more than you fear the persecution, you'll endure. Because how do you compare it? Momentary light affliction is not worthy to be even compared with the eternal weight of glory. And so the idea of being sawn in two or drawn and quartered or beheaded or burned at the stake or crucified. And, but trust me, those are not pleasant thoughts. But do you fear the Lord more than that? See, and, and at that moment of your martyrdom, each believer will have to make that choice for themselves. Occupation with the Father and the Son. And this takes us, I haven't read the whole context of this yet, but in verses 26 down through verse 33, we get this principle. Occupation with the Father and a faithful witness for the Son 
are the means by which believers may not have fear when facing angelic conflict. Are you afraid of your angelic conflict? Here's the provision. Occupation with the Father and a faithful witness for the Son. They are the means by which believers may not have fear when facing the angelic conflict. Again, that's point six. I'm sorry, point seven in the outline. Occupation with the Father and a faithful witness for the Son. And it's occupation with the Father. I realize a lot of teaching in the past has been on occupation with Christ. But this is occupation with the Father and a faithful witness for the Son. These are the means by which believers may not have fear. This is the provision for the fear. Remember, perfect love casts out all fear. And the uh, identification with the Father and the Son is the pinnacle of perfect love. We'll get more of that in 1 Corinthians 13. So therefore, do not fear them. That's an order. Do not fear them. If you are fearful of the persecution, you're disobeying this verse. And you recognize uh, that, there's a, uh, that there's a contrast. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. You better fear God more than you fear them. Because what can they really do to you? They can harm your body. All right. Can they do anything about your salvation? No, not at all. Not at all. Your soul is alive. Your soul is eternal. You have uh, eternal life with a living human spirit from the moment of your salvation. And the issues there. We are not those who are bound for destruction. So the emphasis here is on destroy. You've got kill and then you've got destroy. And you might be killed, but you'll never be destroyed. But we know who the destroyer is. We know where the place of destruction is. We know all about Abaddon and we know all about hell. We know that that is not our destiny. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. See, God is taking care of us day by day. He knows everything we're facing. He knows all the details about every test. He's not overlooking anything. See, we despair. We get, we get weak in our faith and we, we, when we pray, we think that somehow God's not aware of what we're, faced, what we're facing, what we're faced with. That somehow he, he doesn't realize the, the, the degree of our, of our struggle. No, he knows every last thing about it. If he, if he can count the hairs on your head, you think he's overlooking uh, details of your health test or details of your financial test or struggles in your marriage or other things. He's not oblivious to any of that. Why does he count the, head, the hairs on your head? The point is, it doesn't matter, does it? Do you care? I don't care. Whatever number it is, who cares? But the fact that he knows means there's no detail that he's overlooked. There's nothing that's so insignificant that he doesn't bother with knowing about it. He knows about everything in total omniscience. And if he feeds the sparrows, why would he neglect us? See, no, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Even the, the, what the sparrows eat, how long they live, when they die and where they die. Father, that's all part of his decree, all part of his eternal plan. And if his eternal plan includes all that, trust me, he knows all about your persecution. It's all worked out. We can have confidence. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Verse 33 would even, let's read verses 32 and 33 here. So with another, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. 
So if you're going to maintain your witness, your faithful witness, in spite of the, in spite of the opposition and the persecution and the affliction, there's reward waiting you. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's not a, a loss of salvation there. What is that? That is the forfeiture of a reward that you could have otherwise been entitled to, uh, but you saved your scrawny little neck by denying Christ and avoiding persecution, And uh, but to what cost? Was it worth it? In my mind, that's far worse than Esau forfeiting his blessing for a pot of stew. You read that story in Genesis and you think, what an idiot. <laughs> you know, for a single pot of soup, you know, and you just, you think, what a, and it demonstrates how worthless he thought that whole thing was anyway, that it wasn't worth a single meal. You know, I've eaten some, I've eaten some fancy meals in my day, but I can't think of a single meal, even the most expensive meal I've ever eaten, um, which was a grace gift. I didn't pay for it, <laughs> but the most expensive meal I've, I've ever eaten where the tip was more than the second most expensive meal I've ever eaten. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, and for a single meal, you're going to trade away an eternal inheritance? That just demonstrates the godlessness and the, the cosmos thinking of, of Esau at that point in time. So are you going to deny Christ for what? Some temporal deliverance? For a little safety? For your physical life? What are you really endangering when you do that? And you're risking here the denial. See, this is a reward. It comes from the Father. It's a patrological reward. When we've, when we've categorized the different crowns you can receive, the different rewards you can receive, and so forth, this one is the, the patrological award. It comes directly from the Father, and there's only one way to get it. You have to be nominated by God the Son. You have to be nominated by God the Son. It's described right here. And if he denies you this, you're not getting the, the award. You're forfeiting the crown. So whoever confesses me before my Father who is in heaven, see, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. There's the nomination. And Jesus Christ says, here's a faithful believer. Like when you get to the judgment seat, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's Jesus Christ, even while the martyrdom's taking place on earth recognizing your faithful confession and going to the Father and saying, I confess that believer before your throne so that the Father bestows the reward. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's not for salvation. That's for the forfeiture of this reward. So we do need to be occupied with the Father. We do need to maintain a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. And that should be a source of confidence so that we do not fear uh, those who can destroy the body. Some of this may seem pointless. You say, oh, come on, we live in the United States. We live in a land of freedom. There's no persecution. We're never going to get martyred. We're never going to have hard times. All right, just go ahead. Keep uh, whistling past the graveyard. Keep the uh, wool pulled over your eyes and the little fantasy world as if it could never happen here. But uh, in case it does happen here, I want this flock to be equipped. Verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, I love the Christmas hymns. Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. 
Is that what it's about? For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And this, this fits right very well with what we looked at earlier. This is what ultimately will be descriptive of the tribulation on a worldwide basis. But even prior to that, even in the church age, you'll find that there are divisions within earthly families. And the division is, can be boiled down to one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. The one thing that divides earthly families uh, in, in so many different ways is Jesus Christ. When all of a sudden uh, part of the family becomes saved, the other part of the family is not. And it ends up being uh, a source of division and a source of, uh, of, uh, of, of difficulty. And so then a question comes in, who do you love? Do you love me more than these? He, the Lord asked Peter in John 21. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So we better recognize that there can be family conflicts that arise. The Lord described the family conflicts that can arise because of a believer's new spiritual family relationship. He faced it. At the point he's teaching his disciples this, his four brothers are still unbelievers. We don't know about the sisters, but the four brothers we know are unbelievers. We know that because of John chapter 7. And, uh, and they want him to go up and make a big splash at Jerusalem and proclaim himself king and all this other stuff. And they're not even believing in him until after the resurrection. Uh, Peter and Andrew, those are two brothers. Did they have? Were there other brothers? Other family members? Why don't we know anything about them? Well, we're... We have indicators in this text and elsewhere that there probably were other family members beyond them, but they weren't saved. James and John, they're brothers. Did Zebedee have other sons? We don't know. What about these other disciples? We don't know as much about them. But we know Didymus, Thomas called Didymus. What's Didymus? Twin. Well, he had a brother. <laughs> or I guess maybe a sister. Uh, twins. Well, why aren't they mentioned? Is there division there? And at a point where the conflict arises, where, what do you choose? If, uh, if the line is drawn in the sand that it's, you know, you either come to this family function or you go to that church function, what are you going to do? Where's your heart? And uh, when, when family love trumps spiritual responsibilities... You better recognize that uh, Christ describes the uh, proportion there as being not worthy. In any event, there's uh, matters there that believers have to make application of as they are convicted in, the, in their personal walk with Christ and in their uh, obedience to his word. So the Lord described the family conflicts that can arise because of believers' new spiritual family relationship. And that's going to become vital. Can become vital not only in the in, in this final year and a half of his ministry, uh, but it's really going to become the 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 central feature of the church age, right? He's preparing these men not only for their dispensation of Israel ministry, but they're being equipped for their church age ministry. Uh, not yet revealed, not yet clear. It's still mystery form, but much of what he's instructing them here is going to ground them for what they will have to face in the dispensation of the church. 
All right, the conclusion to this then, verses 40 through 42. The Lord concludes his commissioning message to the twelve. And in a couple of these areas, he instructs them that they represent him even as he represents the Father. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Christ came, he came with representative authority. He came as the visible manifestation of the invisible God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That He came not to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him. That He came not to teach His own message, but the message of Him who sent Him. Jesus Christ had representative authority of the Father. Now, the apostles are being sent forth with representative authority of Christ. As the Father sent me, so send I you. This is a level of authority at the apostolic gift that we don't have today in the church age. All right? As a pastor teacher, I have delegated authority, not representative authority. And I try to keep a very clear distinction in those terms because there's a difference. I have delegated authority. And any authority I have in the local church is authority that has been delegated. And I speak for Christ, but I don't speak as Christ. I hope that is clear. When the apostles spoke, when the apostles wrote scripture, when the apostles established churches, when the apostles traveled the world, their authority was Christ's authority. They were representatives. Under apostello, sent with a commission. They spoke as Christ. I speak for Christ under delegated authority. They spoke under representative authority. And it might be semantics. It might be splitting hairs. But I hope that we recognize the difference in that. Is that uh, that uh, no pastor today is writing scripture. No pastor today is speaking as the mouth of the living word in terms of writing New Testament books, in terms of establishing churches, in terms of identifying uh, spiritual gifts and uh, imparting divine blessings through the laying on of hands, for example. When we do a laying on of hands ceremony, it is entirely symbolic, like the communion service is entirely symbolic. There's no mystical power being imparted in ordination, just like there's no mystical uh, power imparted in the communion service. It is symbolic. It is representative. It is, it is uh, uh, remembrance. See? So there's a difference. But these guys, when they go forth, go forth in his very name in the, the identical fashion to how he came forth in the Father. If you receive Christ, you receive the Father. And that's, uh, that's quite a bit different. He also taught them that the basis of eternal reward is our service to the Father and Son through the treatment of his representatives in verses 41 and 42. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. That acceptance of the apostles' message was the acceptance of Christ. Because they were going forth with Christ's message, just as acceptance of Christ's message was the acceptance of the Father. Because he went forth with the Father's message. 
So it's important that we recognize this. This also, by the way, is going to come back up in the tribulation. Because the sheep and goat judgment uh, recognizes that as you have done to the least of these, so also you've done to me, recognizes that those tribulational martyrs, the tribulational evangelists and so forth, uh, that we're back into that age of, of Israel again. So anyway, there's more that we'll deal with that in our Revelation series, hopefully, that uh, you'll be able to link together with this concept and, uh, and do real well with it. All right, the last thing we'll say on this is we're out of time. Having sent off the twelve to their own ministries, Jesus resumed his own teaching and preaching. And it says in chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their city. So he's not, he's not just kicking back and sending them all out to do all the work, right? You know, it's like a, a senior pastor who, who puts his uh, executive pastor, assistant pastor, associate pastor, youth pastor, women's pastor, elderly pastor. And he got all these staffs of pastors, and then they all get out there doing everything, and he just kind of kicks back and supervises, you know, supervises everything as the CEO of this corporate church mentality. No. He's trained them. He's equipped them, giving them their instructions, sending them out. And now, actually... He can get busy himself, probably more busy than he was when those guys were tagging along, right? Because now he's not distracted by training those 12 guys. So they're all off doing their thing. Now he's really got some freedom. He can kick it into high gear at this point, and, uh, and he'll do so uh, while they're gone and, and before, uh, before they come back for the next round of, of training. All right. Well, that's the episode there, episode 34. Episode 35... John the Baptist will lose his head, and uh, and then when the twelve come back, Jesus will feed five thousand. So we're we're on the verge of that when we get to the feeding of the five thousand. So episode thirty-five is the beheading of John the Baptist. Uh, you know the sexy dancing of of the daughter and the impressing of these kings and all the stuff that happens there. We'll deal with that under Lesson 35. And then in Episode 36, the feeding of the 5,000, that is so significant, it's, in, it's included in all four Gospels. There's not a whole lot that's included in all four Gospels, but this is something that is. The feeding of the 5,000, and it marks Passover of 32 A.D. It marks the one-year countdown to the cross because he's crucified on Passover in 33 A.D. So when we get to the feeding of the 5,000, we're, we're locked in on the calendar in a very, in a very uh, uh, pinpoint fashion. We know that we're marking the one-year countdown to the cross. And uh, we've covered already now two and a half years of ministry plus 30 years of life before ministry. And there's one more year to go that takes us through the cross and uh, f- 50 days beyond the cross to Pentecost. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with all that and... Uh, gain some new ground so we are we are making progress it seems like we've been in this series for uh, about 100 years now uh not quite we're getting there and uh truth be told when we get all to the very end it might be worth just starting over again and <laughs> going back to the whole process again i don't know anyway lord does that's that's his good business father thank you for the truth of your word thank you for this time together thank you for the ministry and that you have opened um particularly the training of men. And passages like this, Father, become very convicting and very helpful as we consider um, the men that you've supplied to us. And and we want our training ministry to be focused on all 11 gifts. We're training men and women. We're training uh, all believers for every gift and every ministry, Uh, most of which, Father, will, uh, will be... 
not pastor teachers, most of which will be uh, believers that will be teachers or deacons or Sunday school teachers or they'll be servants and helpers and they'll stay right here in this local church. But a number of them and now a growing number of them will be Poimen Kai Didaskalos, pastor teacher gifts or evangelists that will get their training here. They will be ordained here and they will be launched forth in uh, in a variety of locations for a variety of applications. And Father, uh, we pray for wisdom on that as these men are making some serious decisions, Father. They're selling homes, they're selling businesses, they're relocating with their wives and their families, and uh, and they're definitely taking steps to uh, to be obedient to your calling, to be obedient to your plan. And we need a tremendous amount of, of seriousness and devotion to prayer and seeking of your will, Father, to uh, to proceed forward in the design that you have. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.